Bible with you or your phone or some device, then you'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. Um, in the New Testament, you'll see the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you keep headed to the right, you'll run into Acts. So as you're turning or typing um, to get to Acts chapter 5, we, have, we started just a few weeks ago. Um, what we, we tend to do here is just teach uh, chapter by chapter, um, week by week, through books of Scripture. Um, and so we will be in Acts for a while. Um, Acts is a theological history, right, where Luke, um, it's the second half of his gospel. He wrote Luke, showing us the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And now Acts is the sequel to that showing us kind of the birth and the first generation of the church. And so he's writing a theological history. He's not going to give us a lot of commentary itself, but he's just going to lay out, hey, here's what God is doing um, and, and, and wanting you to, to see clearly his hands at work. And so um, appreciate Danny and, and Dan the last couple of weeks um, as they have uh, faithfully preached from Acts 4 and into the beginning of verse 5. And so we are watching the transformation um, of these believers who were unsure of what was happening at the end of Luke um, to their uncertainty in, in Acts chapter 1, now to boldness and certainty as they move forward in obedience. And so let's pick up beginning in verse 12 of Acts 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, and so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people, and the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And so when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the, camp, in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Cetus rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, let them alone. For, it is, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they left the council, the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So we have, we saw um, a couple, couple weeks ago in chapter 4, the, the beginnings of some persecution, right? Where um, the apostles have um, had a beggar who was crippled, is healed, and the authorities are not pleased with the, the clamor and the crowd and all that's going on. And so they call, right, a couple of the apostles in, and they say, hey, we don't want you talking about Jesus. Don't do it. And they leave. And so what we're, what we're seeing is this kind of leveling up and escalation is beginning to happen. Even today in, in the world, the point of persecution um, isn't, isn't death. The point of persecution is silence. Right? It, is, it is to quieten someone from saying what you don't want said. And there are two primary ways that this happens. You have top-down top persecution. This is where the authorities and the government say, we're going to stop it. And it tends to be more uh, systemic, more governmental, um, and it's, it's approved of kind of in the land by the folks. Hey, we're going we're gonna to silence someone for something they're saying or doing. And then there's bottom-up persecution. And bottom-up, this happens around your, your kitchen table, right? Where there's enough social pressure that you are going to be ostracized from your family or you're going to lose your relationships, that there is persecution to silence you right from the dinner table and the government never has to get involved. And then there are places where both are happening simultaneous, right? Where it is happening from the bottom up and the top down. And so what we see here is the religious leaders are trying, right? They're, they're like, hey, we're going to call you before the authorities, right? That should make you a little bit nervous. We're going we're gonna to threaten you. We're going to tell you you shouldn't do this, right? You're causing a stir, and our hope will be that you'll move on and we can move away from this. And what has happened is they've not done it, right? They have continued to preach and to teach, right? We see, right, that, that, that last week that the enemy is looking to destroy the church. And so he's attacked it from within through Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy. He's attacking it from the outside through the authorities, 
And if you look there where we began in verse 12, then it just says that regularly the apostles were gathering in the same place, right? So that people just knew where they were, so they could come and hear the teaching. They could come and engage with the apostles. But because of the tem- because of the persecution, there's already starting to be a little bit of, hey, are we taking some unnecessary risk? Because look at what he says, right? They were together in Solomon's portico in verse 12. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so already you're seeing some folks go, Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. There are powerful and crazy things happening. We're not sure that we want to be up there. But also, look at what God is doing. And so you can feel the tension even amongst those who would affirm what the disciples, the apostles here are doing, of whether this was a... Like, you can imagine someone going, Hey, Peter, should you really go back to the temple? It feels like you're thumbing your nose at them. Right? Like, could we find somewhere else? Could we go somewhere else? And yet, the apostles are continuing to go, to teach. We don't see them looking like that they're trying to draw too much attention to themselves, but this is an area where it was appropriate to have conversation and discourse and back and forth. And so, they are following the ministry model that they've seen in Jesus. If you go to Luke 4, right as we see his ministry really take forth, what was he doing? But he was preaching, he was teaching, and people were drawing and bringing folks to him that needed healing, both physically and those who were spiritually afflicted right by the demonic. And that Jesus is teaching and bringing healing. And so you can imagine now the apostles going, okay, the Holy Spirit has come, has fallen. Like we, we have these, all these new believers. right? We're, we're teaching them what Jesus has taught us, but what do we do? And they just began to walk in the steps of Jesus. Like, what did we see Jesus do when he started his ministry? Well, he, he taught, and he, and he healed people, and he, he cast out demons, and that they are, they're simply walking in the steps of Jesus here. Then Luke makes it clear that some were simply sick, that others were demonically um, impacted, and yet that all of this is being ministered to just as Jesus did. And we have a, a strange um, passage in verse 15, right? It says, So they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats. It's just the idea that there's a lot of folks around. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Listen, um, we we talked when we began Acts that there are things that are going to be descriptive, right? Like where Luke is just telling us what happened and things that are prescriptive, like you should do this or not do this. This is one of those passages. We don't have a passage that says, hey, make sure right, that shadows heal people. Right? This is, not, uh, this is a, a unique situation here. And, and really what is happening is right, that they know that there is power moving amongst the church right now. Right? Pentecost has occurred. Um, thousands of people are being saved. So folks are drawn to this, wanting hope and healing. And so they're going, okay, maybe if Peter, like he's the the spokesperson, he's the one preaching, maybe if he just walks by in his shadow, that that in this culture would have been like an extension of him, would touch them, maybe it would heal them. Right? We see some of the same sort of mentality from the woman, right? Who wants to just touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Right? Thinking, if I can just touch him, I don't have to say anything, I don't have to draw attention to myself, I will get what he's got. 
right? If, and I, I want to remind us of, of some of the shadow language that we didn't highlight, but we saw in Luke. In Luke chapter 1, right, when it was talking about um, Mary as a virgin conceiving, right, it describes it this way in verse 35 of Luke 1. The angel answered her, meaning Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. If you go over in chapter 1 uh, to verse 78 and 79, as it's talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, he says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Right? It's this idea that they're currently in the shadow of death and they're now going to be in the shadow of God. Right? To guide our feet into the way of peace. And then one other one in Luke chapter 9. This is the transfiguration, right? Where for a moment, three of the disciples get to kind of see the veil pulled back and they get to see Jesus in all of His splendor and all of His glory. This is happening in Luke chapter 9. And it says that Peter said to Jesus in verse 33, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Look at verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid. Right? Like there was this idea that like the shadow of God like moving among them Right, would, would bring was powerful. It was it meant his presence. And so there's kind of an extension of this being given to Peter in this moment of it is clear that God is with you, that God is using you, and so maybe, maybe by extension your shadow is going to do something. Right? And so Luke is describing this. He is not calling us to heal people with our shadows. Right? He is merely describing what is taking place here and giving some understanding of why people would have thought this way or assumed that this might have happened. And so the authorities are frustrated, right? They're upset that these crowds are coming, that people are drawing people in. And so look at verse 17. It says, So the high priest rose up, those who were with him, and they were filled with jealousy. It's misplaced, right? Like fervor. They're angry that the people are following these guys and not them, that their, their power and their control is at risk here. And so it says they arrested the apostles and put them in prison. So they've gone from, hey, will you of your own volition come and talk to us and we're going to threaten you, to now we're going to arrest you and we're going to put you in prison. Right? It's just kind of an escalation. It's like, okay, that didn't work to silence you. Maybe this will. Maybe right, you're in the public prison, we're shaming you. Because remember, these men are the religious leaders. They, these are respected people in the community who are calling the apostles now like criminals, right? Like they're punishing them. It's meant to bring shame. And again, we would love for Luke to give us more detail, but he's, he's just matter of fact here. So he tells them, or tells us that during the night, they were rescued. Like, the, the God, through an angel, right, opens the doors, they walk out, and he doesn't tell them to flee or to run, but he tells them, in the morning, go back to the temple and keep doing what you're doing. And that the guards don't see it, and the doors are locked, like that God has rescued them. 
And so as we imagine now the apostles before the Sanhedrin and before the council, there is a semblance of a trial taking place, right? Where, where they're saying, hey, we disagree who's right, who's true. And what we see here is God is affirming the truth of what He has called the apostles to do by their rescue, right? By their message, right? Like that He is affirming them by more people believing and by signs and wonders. He is affirming, I am with these men and women. I am for what is taking place here. And so, you can imagine the next morning, the, the Sanhedrin show up, the high priest show up, and there's a sense of, you think they learned their lesson, right? Like they were in prison last night. Maybe they'll come in just a little more malleable this morning. Right? We're, we're going to really turn the screws, and I think, guys, I think we've got this thing shut down today. And so they go, go get them, right? And you can imagine pomp and circumstance and, and haughtiness and pride as they just kind of sit there waiting for them to come in. And you can imagine the horror, right, of who, the messengers, right, coming back and being like, um, they're not there. And no one knew they weren't there because the guards haven't seen anything. And they're still there. And they're like, you can imagine the guards like confidently going, yes, I stood here all night. Wait, what? Like, I mean, like the, the horror in that moment of, I didn't leave. I did not shirk my responsibility or my duty. What do you mean they're not there? And the horror that is taking place. And, and you can imagine the commotion and the uproar as they're going, okay, where are they? What's happened? What does this mean? And someone else comes in and goes, uh, are you talking? They're at the temple. Uh, doing the same thing you arrested them for yesterday. And now in that moment, the, the, the council is, their pride, right? Their reputation is at stake. What are we going to do? But they've still got a crowd. And so they're like, let's go get them. Um, and the guards are going, we don't want to die. We don't want to die. And so, right, you can imagine them kind of cajoling, and it says, listen, that they, they go and they get them to bring them back to, to stand before them. And it says in verse 26, the captain with the officers went and they brought them, but not by force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Like the, the, the pendulum had swung where the crowds were going, hey, we think these guys are speaking truth, and we're not sure what the council's doing. And so they didn't want it to be an issue of, of a fight, because they would have lost in that moment. And so there is something to be said that the apostles went. They were not hiding they went to stand before the council again. They could have, right, said, hey, crowd, get them. And they didn't, right? They, they, they could have made this more difficult, and they didn't. They went back with the captain and his guards. And we continue. Verse 28. We strict, like it says, like they, we strictly told you not to do this, and you're still doing it. Like, they are, they are so frustrated. And the end of verse 28 says, you continue, like you filled Jerusalem with this teaching, it's like you're intending to bring this man's blood upon us. In Matthew 27, I want you to hear this. 
So when this is in verse beginning verse 24, when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, "I am innocent of this man's blood. See it for yourself." And all the people answered, "His blood be upon us and on our children." Right? That there had been a cry of, "Put it on us. We want him dead. Put it on us." And now here the council is saying, "It seems." You're trying to put this man's blood on us. And yet we know that's not true because what has Peter repeatedly done in every sermon we've seen so far in Acts? But it said, and repentance is available. Like, turn. It's for, it's for us. It's for the nation. Listen, in verse 31, God exalted Jesus at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance, right? Not to, just to us, to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. He's saying, repent. Like, you too can know this Jesus. You too cannot have His blood on you. But look at verse 33, their response. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So it's like, all right, we threatened you. That didn't work. We put you in prison. That didn't work. Now we want you dead. We want you dead. And you can, you can see the mob scene even taking place here where, where your pride has been, been stoked enough that you're like, I don't care. I just want it done. I want it over. You can imagine also the thought of like, what are we going to do? Like they got out of prison. Like, we, we, How do we stop them? We are powerless against this. And so a wise gentleman in verse 34 stands up and says, okay, hey, I want them out. Like send the apostles out. Hey guys, let's talk. And he just begins to walk through their history and says, hey, we, we've had some things like this happen before where men have risen up and when they were killed, and right, the reference would be now that Jesus has died. So he's like, it peters out, like it fades away. Jesus hasn't been dead that long. Let's see. Because like, if it's a man, it's going to go away. We don't have to do it and the crowds right now um, will probably kill us. So like, but it, and if it's of God, we can't stop it anyway. And, and I think it's important for us to note, this isn't belief on his part. This isn't faith on his part. There's some wisdom here of how to handle things, but he's not saying it's because I believe in Jesus. He's simply saying, guys, for our sake, let's just see how this, how this pans out. And so they bring them back in, right? After hearing this, and so in verse, uh, verse, the end of verse 39, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This idea of like they just beat them um, is, is, is like, it's too easy to pass through that. Very likely they flogged them, right? Like 39 lashes, right? If not, I mean, it was something substantial, and so it wasn't just, but regardless, like if you're standing there taking a beating, it's not a pleasant experience in whatever form or fashion it takes. That there is, there's a sense of you are being shamed and you are being beaten and you're being told to keep your mouth quiet. And so I don't, I don't, I think we almost like imagine them walking down the street saying like, look how, like we just want to keep talking about Jesus. They were probably also Life and blood off their face. Probably also not like eyes swollen. Probably also helping each other walk. Right? Like there was 
They had probably been screaming and in pain. And here they are, though, walking out. And they left the presence of the council, verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And in every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And so we are watching, right, their transformation, right, from these men who denied Jesus, who fled from Jesus, to being men who are taking beatings for the name of Jesus and saying, we're going to continue to do it. You can beat us again. We're going to continue to do it. And I want us to, to pause for a moment and think about some of our own American kind of cultural sensibilities and how they are completely at odds with these men's response. Because like, as we think through our, our culture and it's influenced the church, maybe more so than we even want to know, right? So what are some things that Americans are built on? We want comfort. Like any advertising you see is about, it's about comfort, right? That you need to have this because it will make your life better and more comfortable. We want ease and convenience. We want a long life, right? Like we just kind of have this American expectation that we should get multiple decades, like well into old age, right? And, and so we, with our medical system, right, with, with um, diets, with workouts, it's all about having as good of a life for as long as you can that is as easy and as comfortable as you can. We see this home, or this, we see this place as our home, and so we begin to put down really deep roots, right? And so we don't want to, to upset the apple cart, so to say. And we want acceptance. Right? We want to belong. We want to be affirmed. These men have legit, like legit shame being heaped upon them by, by community leaders and religious leaders. Like you can imagine the crowd is looking at it going, who's right? Like we, we've known and trusted these men. We like this message. But like it's, it says like they suffered dishonor for the name. And we want approval, right? We want to be accepted. We don't like people not liking us. And so often our response to that is one of two things, that we either will do whatever it takes to gain approval and gain acceptance, or what do we do? We fight back, right? Our pride is affected. We want to win. And so we become a jerk, right? We begin to find people in our own echo chambers to affirm us. And then we begin to maybe even go to Scripture to say, it's not for me, it's for them. It's, not, it, it's ammo to attack with. It's not to be transformed by. And so we begin to like, fight back, and it's ugly. Because it's not about faithfulness, it's about being right, or being prideful, or about winning. And so none of the apostles' decisions here make sense in light of comfort, of ease, of long life, of seeing this place as our home, right, of, of being accepted, or about our pride. You can imagine even here there would have been some sense of, hey guys, you've proven a point. Like the council's made their decision, just stop. Like you don't need to keep being beat. This is unnecessary. Maybe we should flee. Um, you can imagine a prayer like, God, please stop this. And yet, what did we see a couple weeks ago in, Luke, or in Acts 4? Their prayer was, God, would you be glorified in this? Not would you stop the persecution, 
but would you use it and would you move for your glory? I think it's also important for us to note in our American sensibilities here that their call was not to overthrow the council. They're not going back and going, okay, I'm not taking another beating in those guys' hands. All right, the crowd's for us. I think we can take them. That was not the call of the apostles here, to, to overthrow it. Remember, this is transformation, because Peter, weeks ago, when they tried to arrest Jesus, had done what? Had pulled a sword and cut off a dude's ear. And Jesus is like, this is not how the kingdom is coming. And here we see that he has learned this, that he has grown, that he is modeling Jesus. Right? Like, or he, is, he is following the model of Jesus here, of taking it, right? And moving forward in faithful obedience. They're not looking to overthrow. They took their punishment and they went on. Right? This reminds us of what Peter has written in 1 Peter chapter 2. He writes this. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, he's not writing like hypothetically here, you endure. But when you do good and suffer and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's saying it's worship. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Right? So he says, like, Peter has now experienced this. He says, I saw Jesus against unjust trials, unjust judges, right? Take it. Because he knew they weren't really in control, but God was. And so he says, now we can do this too, because he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He's saying, we saw Jesus walk in this, and now we're trying to walk in it too. And so we're not trying to overthrow the council. We're taking our punishment, and we're moving forward faithfully and obediently. And it's why church history will tell us that most likely um, most of the apostles were martyred. That they... They put their money where their mouth was, right? They followed Jesus to death. Not looking to, to have a comfortable life, not looking to have an easy life, not looking to extend their life, not seeing this place as their home, but in faithfulness, trusting the one who they could know would judge justly, and that's the Father. They had broken the council's law, and so they took their punishment. They weren't hateful, they weren't ugly. They knew the council was blind and deceived and hardened, and that so were they before Jesus rescued them. And so when we look at our opponents, would we be reminded, and so would we be, apart from the grace of God, that we would be that hardened or that numb or that blind or that angry. And so the, ch the challenge of what we see here from the apostles and the call for us is to have compassion towards those who oppose us, not arrogance. To not say, well, I'm right and you're wrong, but it's to say, may God lift the scales from your eyes. May He remove a hardened heart. Would He soften what, what you see in the world? We want you to trust Jesus. 
So I want to give one quick way that this, maybe we can, we can take the encouragement I mean, the difficulty of Acts chapter 5 into our own life. Listen, shame is, is happening and shame is coming for us culturally. Um, even more so, and, and this is not, not fear mongering, it's just the reality. And, and for our kids, right, that we would expect that if you hold to biblical teachings, um, you're going to be called a bigot. And you're going to be called backwards. And you're going to be a part of the minority. And you're going to be, um, you're going to lose some things. You're going, to be, you're going to lose some respect. And you're going to lose some affirmation. And you're going to lose some approval. Um, and so how do we walk in that ourselves as well as raise our kids and our grandkids and, and the, the kids that God has blessed his church with, right? To not grow up to be arrogant jerks, thinking they're right about everything and everyone else is a moron but to be compassionate and also to cling to Jesus in the midst where it would be really easier to just have a more comfortable, easier, longer life that's rooted in the approval of this world. Like that is, that is the task before us. And as we see the apostles faithful to this, as they are literally being beaten, that we would wrestle with, we're going to have to, to think differently and teach differently. That we're going to, going to affirm Scripture without apology, and that we're going to obey it over the civil laws of the land, right? Not as a means of overthrowing, but as a means of making much of King Jesus. And so why were they able to do this? And where can we, this is where we're going to end quickly here. The first was, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. They knew that Jesus was not just a thought or an idea. They had seen his resurrected form. They had seen him ascend to heaven. They're eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of this to say to everyone else, trust this. This is real. God is still at work. He is affirming and approving of this and is calling us to obey. You can imagine Peter going, I can't deny him. I did. I couldn't do it again because he beat death. Like, you want to beat me? Beat me. But I've seen God. What are you, what are you going to do to me? And we see this in Paul down the road where they're like, man, we throw you in jail, you tell people about Jesus, right? We, we threaten your life, and you're like, good, I'll go be with Jesus. Right? It's like you can't beat him. And we see the apostles, this mentality beginning to emerge right now that they couldn't deny and so what are they clinging to? A living hope is what Peter will say in 1 Peter 1. It, it, their hope was not just, I hope there's eternity. I hope that Jesus is right. It was, he beat death. He left. He's promised to come back. Our hope we're clinging to is alive. It's Jesus. And so do we teach our children, are we teaching ourselves to cling to King Jesus? Because he meets us in our prayers. And he meets us through his word. He he gives us His Spirit and He gives us His people. He gives us something to hold on to. We're not just drifting in the, in the ocean of culture and of history. We have something to hold on to. It's actual hope and it's actual security. Right? They have an inheritance, Peter will write in, in 1 Peter 1 as well. That this inheritance is being held by God eternal, um, eternally in heaven. And so he's saying, listen, they can take it all. They can take it all. I've got something for me. There's a reward coming. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6? This is uh, verse 35. I'm, 
no, I'm sorry, 23, Luke 6, 23. Rejoice, I'll start in 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. We're seeing Luke 6, 23 lived out in Acts 5, and we're being called to trust the same inheritance that's been set aside for us. So they can revile your name, they can shame your name, they can do it on account of Jesus, they can remove you from things, right? They can call it, there's a reward, and there's an inheritance, and it's held by King Jesus. And so we trust in the resurrection that Jesus is alive. And because of that, He has not left you and He's not forsaken you. And He's going to minister to you and He's going to keep you. We take heart in the fact that there is a reward and there is an inheritance. We take heart in the fact that nothing is wasted because He is in control. That we trust ourselves to a faithful judge who is watching and seeing and will affirm. Even when things are difficult, nothing is wasted. Peter, and for us, we'll be reminded that Jesus suffered. And so Peter's going, if he suffered, why would I get to avoid it? Like, he's better than me. He, he was faithful when I denied him. Why would I think Jesus should suffer? I shouldn't. And so, right, the church has often wanted to kind of skirt around that. Like we, again, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he'll say, why are you surprised, church, when fiery trials come? Like they, they crucified Jesus. This world is at war with him. We should not be surprised when fiery trials come, but nothing is wasted, and God is holding us in his hand, and he is faithful, and he will equip us. And He has given us one another. And so in Hebrews, right, when the church is literally having their property plundered, they're having folks thrown in, in jail, and He says to them, right, you've joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because your hope isn't here. It's there. And you have one another. So we need each other. And we need each other spiritually to encourage and to walk and to, to, when we stumble, right? Like you can imagine the scene as they're walking down the road after taking a beating. That is a great picture for what the church should be today. Whether it is happening physically or spiritually or emotionally or financially, that we have each other and we're walking down the street going, we get to suffer for His name? That is an honor. Not because I'm a jerk, right? Not because I'm offending people. Not because I'm a, an online warrior. But because, right, I'm standing on the truths of Scripture. And that we care for one another when someone does get thrown in jail or someone's property is plundered, right? So we see right, this idea from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 that they're sharing with one another, taken all the way to Hebrews where they're saying it's actually happening and we need to care for each other spiritually and practically. And lastly, that we would live with gratitude and humility, not seeing those around us as enemies. That we would have compassionate, broken hearts, longing for them too to trust and see the beauty of the good news of Jesus. That we wouldn't war against others. Listen, um, the apostles didn't try to counteract the council with another council. 
They didn't try to use political power and might against them. They were simply faithful to Jesus. They were just, they were just faithful to Jesus. And Rome was changed. History was changed. And so here we are, 2,000 years later, seated in a town that is not Roman, that is not on the same continent, that doesn't speak the same language, saying that Jesus' name is sufficient. Because faithful folks for 2,000 years have shared it with their neighbors and their kids and their grandkids and their opponents. And God just continues to save folks and to redeem, to reconcile, until the day He splits the sky and returns for us. And so we are a part of that. And we want to live in light of that. And we want to make much of King Jesus' beautiful name so that it can be said of us in every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. And that we would trust that He's given us solid ground to stand on and we are secure in His hands, even when suffering comes. That victory can come even in suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You that You don't uh, whitewash things, that You don't promise ease, and then they're not. Um, there isn't ease, but that You let us know that in this world we will have trouble, but we take heart because You've overcome this world. So God, we, we confess this morning that we don't handle this well. Lord, we want acceptance, and we want approval, and we want comfort, and we want ease. And we certainly want it for our kids. We certainly want it for our grandkids. And teaching them to cling to you in the midst of a world that will war against them um, does not sound glorious. But you're faithful. And you have placed us in history at this time. And so we say together, we trust you and we know that's difficult. And so we, we know that you'll meet us in it. And God, will we be found faithful? That we would obey you and trust You, and know You. Um, and God, would You give us the grace to love those who, who don't yet love You, and to point our kids to trust and to cling to You, because we're doing it as well. And Lord, that we would see You add to Your church, to your, the number of those who trust You, um, because You're using the faithfulness of simple folks, ordinary folks who are walking with You in the panhandle of Texas in 2023. God, we need you. We ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, as the band comes, we're